0: Okay, a quick announcement before we get started. We just got these in yesterday, and I'm really excited about these. And this um, was—I was given some inspiration this past Lord's Day, a week ago, about in our bulletin, Um, we took away a little section where there was a section for notes. And uh, so, Donna, we had some notebooks made that say, Jinx Bible Church Sermon Notes, you can keep them together all in just one after the other. Keep it with your Bible. This one's yours. You need to come get this one. This one's for you. Now, we do have some of these extras out in the foyer. Uh, And for (laughs) $19.95. Thank you. That was a good reminder. We took away your opportunity to take notes. We're a Bible church. We like it when people have their scriptures open and are taking notes, learning the Word of God. Also, I'm going to be reading just a small portion out of this little The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. We have about, I don't know, 15 copies of this available on the table right outside in the foyer. Please grab one and take it on the way home. Read through this. There is a larger version of this. Um, make yourself available uh, to that as well if, if need be. But make certain that you grab one of those on your way out today. Well, we gather this Lord's Day as any other Lord's Day to make much of Jesus Christ. The the scriptures uh, from Genesis to Revelation remind us of Christ in so many ways. Um, and they all point to His coming and His advents and His death, burial, and resurrection, wherein we become the recipients of His life. We become Christians followers of His. And so on this Resurrection Lord's Day, uh, that's what we aim to do, but we also aim to make much of the scriptures with regard to the person of Christ relative to His resurrection. There's two Sundays throughout the course of the year, Christmas and Resurrection Lord's Day, that a lot of folks take advantage of, and so uh, when given that opportunity, uh, like Barney Fife who had one bullet, I'm going to pull that trigger and I'm going to fire my best resurrection sermon at you that I can, which I was thinking back a year ago, uh, this room was empty upon giving a resurrection Lord's Day sermon, and so it's, uh, it's nice to have you all here to fill your energy and to, to preach God's word with the body. So I'm going to read a small portion from this and just getting us moving uh, this morning. Again, we have some copies, not many, so don't wait long. If you're going to get one, you need to get it when, when service is over. Don't leave now. I see that back door opening. Okay, she's coming in. It says, Candy heiress Helen Brock flew into O'Hare International Airport on a crisp autumn afternoon stepped into a crowd and promptly disappeared without a trace. For more than 20 years, the mystery of what happened to this red-haired, animal-loving philanthropist has baffled police and journalists alike. While investigators are convinced she was murdered, they haven't been able to determine the specific circumstances, largely because they've never found her body. The Brock case is one of those frustrating enigmas that keep me awake from time to time as I mentally sift through the sparse evidence and try to piece together what happened. Ultimately, it's an unsatisfying exercise. I want to know what happened and there just aren't enough facts to chase away the conjecture. Occasionally, bodies turn up missing in pulp fiction and real life, but rarely do you encounter an empty tomb. Unlike the case of Helen Brock, the issue with Jesus isn't that he was nowhere to be seen. It's that he was seen alive. He was seen dead, and he was seen alive once more. If we believe the gospel accounts, this isn't a matter of a missing body. No, it's a matter of Jesus still being alive even to this day, even after publicly succumbing to the horrors of crucifixion so graphically depicted in the Gospels. The empty tomb is an enduring symbol of the resurrection. It's the ultimate representation of Jesus' claim to being God. Isn't that good? The issue, the evidence isn't that we're still trying to search and figure out evidence about did Jesus really raise back to life? Because the scriptures give multiple counts, multiple eyewitness accounts of said reality. And this is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings us, as many will articulate, to the very core of our Christian faith, because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the claims of the gospel fall flat. jesus himself asked a couple of very pointed questions when living life with his disciples questions that are just as pertinent pertinent and pointed today as they were then in matthew 16 13 through 16 jesus asked his disciples these questions first he says in verse 13 who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say the Son of Man is? And this question that Jesus asks, and when you read all through Matthew's gospel, you see Jesus making reference to himself as being the Son of Man. Jesus makes an unambiguous claim to being the Son of Man in this passage that we're looking at even right here. And this passage, the, the, the use of this term, Son of Man, takes us all the way back to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. I don't know how familiar you are with Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7, but Daniel saw a vision in the night. We see here, he says, in Daniel seven thirteen, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And now you tell me who this sounds like to you. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, one coming like the Son of Man up before the Ancient of Days, most agree that this is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man being Jesus Himself, and He was given a a kingdom and dominion that will never be destroyed. And that is affirmed throughout the New Testament in a multitude of places. And so Jesus, when saying, who, who do people say the Son of Man is, we see in verse 14 that, that, that there's a multitude of ideas as to who this individual from Daniel 7 might have been. Some were saying perhaps it was John the Baptist. Some were still, Others were saying Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So the idea of who that Son of Man was going to be, we see there's all kinds of ideas in in this culture. But one of the things that's interesting is we see that in this Jewish community, at large, they were at least doing what? They were looking. They were thinking these thoughts. And as John the Baptist came on the scene doing the things that he did, well, perhaps he's the one that's being referenced to here. They were looking. And so Jesus says to them in verse 15, to them, but who do you say that I am? So again, Jesus is making an unambiguous claim to being the, the Son of Man. He is, this is who he is. So who do you say, who do they say the Son of Man is? All these different ideas. Okay, well, how about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, jumps up first, and he says, you're the Christ, which... Is the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. Now, we're not going to delineate on Matthew 16, but Jesus went on to tell Peter that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. It was revealed to you by my Father who's in heaven. So, the recognition, the knowledge that Jesus actually is the Son of Man of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7, he's saying that you've been gifted something from the Father to have that knowledge. That's not something that you gain just from going to the temple and listening because nobody was saying that this is who Jesus was, that he was indeed the Messiah, the promised one coming of God. And so these questions, who do people say that Jesus is? This question, who do you, again, he personalized it, who do you, and we need to do the very same thing this morning, who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe in the resurrection? If you believe that Jesus was indeed raised back to life on the third day, then you're saying that he indeed is the I Am, the great I Am, that he is the Son of Man who will have a kingdom and a dominion that will last forever and ever. And as Paul said in Philippians 3, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every tongue, every knee to the glory of God the Father. You're saying, yes, I recognize that this is who Jesus is. And I would say to you, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. God opened your spiritually blind eyes to see that truth. And so we gather on Lord's days like today to give thanks to him for that. We need to come into this place being grateful people, thankful people, thankful that God has done for us what only he could have done. Paul said, as I mentioned earlier, he plants. Apollos waters. Who caused the growth? God. This is a beautiful work of God. It's called salvation. God saves. If perhaps you're not certain who Jesus is, you would fall uh, well in line with the well, the now famous. Uh, Quote that's been attributed to C.S. Lewis, well not attributed to him, he said it, he said you have to make a decision about who this Jesus is, and so this morning if you're not certain, I want to challenge you to make a decision perhaps even today as to who you believe Jesus truly is, because if you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, of the vision of Daniel in Daniel 7, if you truly believe that, would that not have an active voice in in the way you choose to live your life day by day, if you really, truly believe, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I, let's just be honest here. This is some. This is some. This is some amazing truth that's being preached here. That's being taught in God's Word that there's a God who's existed for all eternity, and that God, being of three persons, as revealed in the Scriptures, the second person, the Son of God, left heaven and came to earth. I mean, we're talking about some pretty amazing things here. And if you truly believe these things to be true, it shouldn't be that difficult for us to have a glad submission to the Word of God, to the Lord who says, if you keep my commandments, you love me. Who do you truly today believe Jesus to be? C.S. Lewis says you can't just say that he was a good teacher, a good moral teacher. No, he says you have to recognize him as Lord, as a lunatic, or as a liar. Lord, he's exactly who he claimed to be according to the Scriptures. He's the Lord. Or he says you have to somehow find a mediating position and just say he was a lunatic. He was just out of his mind. He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't intentionally try to deceive people. That's what the liar position holds. He didn't purposely try to deceive people. He went around and he taught what he taught, and he was just out of his mind. We've all known crazy people, right? Don't, don't answer out loud. Okay. And so that's a position, perhaps, that you put Jesus, But then he's, or he was in his right mind and he was purposefully lying and deceiving people. You have to make a decision about who you believe Jesus to be. To say, I'm not going to make a decision about Jesus would be absolutely asinine. This man turned time on its head. For the entire world keeps record of time based on this man's living and dying. How did that happen? Just by chance? Just some random fluke that, that no. This happened because this is the most amazing story. This is the most amazing book that's ever been written on planet Earth. It's that God left heaven and he came on a rescue mission for you. Isn't that beautiful? Happy Resurrection, Lord's Day. He desires to be in relationship with you, the only true God of heaven and earth. Let's not leave today without making a decision as to who you think Jesus is. The Apostle Paul made a decision about who Jesus was. He was on trial for his life before the Jewish leaders. We see in Acts 23.6, he says, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul, who had hooves on the ground, was an eyewitness. Risked everything, life and limb. And sometimes we have to ask why. Why would he do that? What would be the payoff if he knew that it was a hoax? No, Paul clearly... Uh, was one who had opportunity to know for certain, being an eyewitness to the risen Jesus. And so his decision was very easy. He knew indeed that Jesus was the risen Lord. Listen to what Paul said in Acts 17, 31. We read this earlier today. Says that God has fixed a day when he was witnessing to the Epicurean philosophers, he said, God's fixed a day in which he will judge. God will judge the world in righteousness. And this is a message that doesn't oftentimes take much root because it's not dealing with your best and happiest life now, though it it actually is, because if you refuse Jesus Christ, there is a day that God is fixed and there will be judgment that will come against the world of people. This is the world of people in righteousness, against the standard of righteousness through a man whom he appointed, and that's Jesus Christ, the man. And he furnished proof. God didn't just leave us all groping in the dark. Thankfully, God left us some proof. See this word proof right here? God furnished proof to all people by raising Jesus from the dead. It's, it's unambiguous. You can't say, well, I just, I don't know. I'm kind of Agnostic. Well, you may not know because you're living 2,000 years later, but God left a witness. He left eyewitnesses. They wrote testimony. Well, maybe they didn't really write the truth. Maybe they just kind of made it up. Maybe they just kind of made these stories up. Well, that's a decision you're going to have to make, but guess what? You're going to have to make a decision about who you truly believe Jesus to be. And here we have an eyewitness saying that God is coming again, and he will judge the world in righteousness And that place is what the scripture defines as a place called hell, fire, which will last forever and ever and ever. But through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ, there is an eternal kingdom with Christ Jesus, just like Daniel saw that was presented him a dominion that will never end forever and ever and ever. Oh, and by the way, Jesus himself also believed in the resurrection, and he spoke about it, Matthew 17, and while they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, and here he is again making the unambiguous claim that he is the Son of Man, he says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. They knew exactly what he was talking about. We see this again in Luke's gospel, Luke 18. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus clearly believed in his, his own resurrection, that he was the Son of Man from Daniel 7, clearly making these references. The Apostle Paul believed that, and when he was writing to the church in Corinth, Paul laid out his most conclusive argument for the resurrection anywhere in all of the epistles of the 13 that he wrote. We're going to just kind of walk through that briefly. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, here Paul is quoting from an early creed in the church. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, just like Jesus had been teaching His disciples, according to the Scriptures. So Paul say, says that this is what is of first importance, the gospel message that I delivered to you was of first importance. Number one, that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of God who died on the cross. Secondly, that he was buried, and third, that he was raised back to life on the third day, which clearly shows that Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do, as was prophesied according to the scriptures. And then from verse five through eight, Paul gives a simple list of those whom Christ appeared to. Notice, And he appeared to Cephas. Post-resurrection appearances, he appeared to to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, his disciples. And then he appeared, post-resurrection appearance, to more than 500. That's a pretty staggering statement. There there was a large group of individuals. It wasn't just the twelve. He appeared to more than 500. And when you get to the book of Acts chapter 1, how many were gathered in the upper room that day? About 120 those 120 I believe without question were a part of this 500 right here just go read the account of Acts chapter 1 and you will see that those 120 were individuals who are part of this 500 group who were eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus who most uh, of whom most remain until till now that means they're still alive He's telling the the Corinthian believers, most of these people are still living. Some have have died, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared, post-resurrection appearance, to me also. That's to the apostle Paul. Clearly, Jesus made an appearance to Peter, the disciples, and then one untimely born, Paul himself. And we see this borne out through the preaching in the, in the gospel, excuse me, the, the epistle of Acts. In Acts 2.32, Peter was preaching. He says that God resurrected Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. This is in his post-Pentecost preaching. You killed the source of life, Acts 3.15, whom God what? raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts 10, to, when speaking to Cornelius in his house, we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become Visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now Peter is saying that we ate and we drank with Jesus post-resurrection from the dead. There's an un- the, the eyewitness testimony, witnesses, to more than 500. At one time he showed up. So trying to source together witnesses and individuals who were alive, when these, when these gospel accounts were written, there would have been those who had knowledge of the eyewitnesses. They would have been telling their story. Those stories were told, and some of them were preached and recorded, as we have in the book of Acts, of the fact of Jesus being crucified, buried, and raised back to life. It's an empty tomb story. Jesus is God. There's no other way To account for this truth. The Apostle Paul embeds this within his gospel to the Romans that I've made mention of here a few times this morning in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Paul writing to the Roman church, and if you think about what Paul is saying to the church in Rome here, it's very staggering, because in the Roman world, in the Roman culture, Caesar's Lord, and to say otherwise would be an immediate death sentence for yourself. But yet the testimony that was to come from the believers, and this is why so many believers had their lives, uh, they were martyrs in that time, is because this was to be their confession. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, resurrection from the dead, we're preaching that Jesus rose alive again from the dead, according to the scriptures. You will be saved no belief in the lordship of jesus no belief in the resurrection paul saying look you might want to check your spiritual pulse there's no salvation outside of the knowledge of believing that jesus rose from death to life he is the lord of glory he's the son of man from daniel's vision in daniel 7 Who on the clouds came before the ancient of days and received a kingdom and dominion that would endure forever and ever and that's Jesus isn't that hard to conceive of and isn't that hard to believe that God became a man the God man well obviously that would be something that would be kind of radical right but not as radical as the truth that we're floating on a big rock out in space I mean how did all that happen we're just on a rock out in space, and we don't even know how far the space goes. And we act like that's normal. <laughs> you think that's normal? I'm still blown away by that, Pastor Matt, Royce. And it's spinning, and it's in rotation. It's mo- yeah, we're moving right now at like 1,000 miles an hour or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly complex. So to assume that there's a God who left heaven and came to this earth, that's floating. It's, I mean, it's not... These eyewitnesses are everything. No resurrection, no salvation. Paul's going to get to that. No resurrection, no salvation. Look at verse 12, 15, 12. Now if Christ has preached that he, is, that he has been raised from the dead, and that was the preaching of Peter we saw, Paul, how do some among you... How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, Paul's question here is so obvious to the Corinthian believers. Well, perhaps believers, perhaps not, but to those within the Corinthian church. He's like, listen, if, if Peter and I have been preaching that Jesus raised from the dead and we're eyewitnesses, I mean, who, who are you to say the contrary? Were you there where did you get the notion that there was no resurrection from the dead just a thought from within your own head you're thinking about the complexities of it dead people don't come back to life just the basics that we obviously know because of the way things work people die you bury them and they stay buried but if it's been preached that there is a, that he has raised from the dead how are you saying that he didn't it's kind of where Paul heading here and then in verse 13 and 14 notice But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. The gospel message is vain, and your faith also is vain. Why even have faith in a dead man who claimed to be one that was going to raise back to life? It's, It's meaningless. Verse 15, Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. If there's no resurrection, then everyone who has claimed and testified to the fact, Paul's saying they're false witnesses and they've testified against God. As a matter of fact, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins, and God's wrath will be poured out on you on that day that he is fixed. Now, the preaching of Peter was that he fixed that day according to the man Christ Jesus and his righteousness. But Paul's making the, the obvious that, listen, to assume that there's no resurrection from the dead leaves you in a place with a dead faith that will not save you, and you will incur the wrath and judgment of God, you are still in your sins. He's not saying that there's not a God. He's just saying you're still in your sins before the only true and living God, and there's hell to pay. So the only logical conclusion is that all who have died with their faith in Christ have gone there. 18 then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. No hope. No life. They're eternally lost because their faith was useless, because Jesus was not the Son of Man. Jesus was not the promised Messiah. He is not the one that Daniel saw in his vision, who was given a kingdom. We're still waiting for that one. That's what a lot of Jews thought. They thought they were still waiting for the right one to show up, that Jesus wasn't that one. He fit the bill in every way, except he didn't immediately usher in a kingdom, immediately, an earthly kingdom. And that's what they were anticipating when they read their Old Testament scriptures. And so when you read Isaiah 53 and some other passages, you see how closely the first advent and the second advent of Jesus are pushed together, and they were unable to distinguish between those two. They were unable to distinguish that there was going to be the suffering servant that was going to come and die between the Messiah who's going to come again and establish said kingdom. They weren't able to make that distinction. And so they said of Jesus... In John 1, 14 and 15, he came to his own, his own received him not. They rejected him. And so Paul is saying, but if you did believe, your, your faith would be worthless. You've perished. And then in verse 19, he says, look, if that's, and if all this is true, man, us poor Christians, we, we deserve most to be pitied. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied because man we are laying it on the line oh and paul was what what was he and i say it, witness of the resurrection of jesus christ he knew for a fact he says in verse 20 but now christ has been raised from the dead and from 20 onward he elaborates on that. He says Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Jesus is the first of the resurrection, and all of God's children who will be resurrected bodily after that are coming in the likes of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in Philippians 13, he says, I'm forgetting what lies behind, but I'm pressing ahead for what? The Upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That upward call, that's a movement upward, the upward call of God of God. I'm looking forward to being with Him and having a resurrected body and being with Him. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3. Because Jesus was the first fruits, the apostle Paul knew exactly what was going to be happening to and with him. Isn't this good? And do you see the honesty with which the Apostle Paul is dealing with this? And I think that it's good for us to have good, honest discussions about the Scripture like this as well, because you're going to get to a place when you're letting your light shine before men in such a way that they're going to say something to you like, do you really, though, believe in the resurrection? That a dead man came back to life? And what are you going to say? Yeah, that's me. I'm the guy with the two heads and the three eyes and, you know, yeah, yep. Yeah. And you're going to feel a little bit foolish saying that because dead men don't come back to life except Jesus did. Oh, and Lazarus for a little time when Jesus rose him back to life again from death, right? But yes, that's what we believe. We believe in a miraculous God. We believe in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created this earth that we're floating on out in space. That's what we believe. We believe in a God that's so powerful and with the spoken word... Everything that we, that's knowable to us came as a result of him. All things were from him and through him. And Colossians says, for him. Colossians chapter 1. This is indeed an amazing and beautiful story. And so I want to end briefly with you with a verse here from 1 Peter 3.15. that says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense apologetic to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you if indeed your hope is in Jesus Christ you have hope in a resurrected Savior and you have hope that as he was the first fruit, you too someday will be resurrected yet notice with gentleness and reverence you don't need to be out there beating somebody over the head with the Bible listen it, salvation is a work of God, just, just lay the scriptures out there. Get the gospel to them, let God be God. God causes the growth. You don't have to sweat it. You don't have to conjole them into the kingdom. You plead with them, you articulate for them, you give a clear defense with gentleness and reverence, and you let them think clearly about the evidence of the scriptures. Obviously, that's what we do, and we plead for them because we want them to come to faith in Christ. Desperately, we want them to. Amen because they're just, they were just like us. They were born and conceived in iniquity and sin of their father Adam. Just like, they're just like we were. And so we have compassion for them. And that's why we, in obedience to the Scriptures, do what Jesus says. We're his ambassadors. We're going about this world, and we're freely giving out the gospel to whosoever will come. And we're pleading with all people everywhere, come! Today is the day of salvation. Please, trust in Christ. That's what we do. But you need to be able to give a defense. And in the resurrection, this is if you're taking notes. These are good notes. I try to give you these every year. Sometimes I miss. But you need to know these. Dealing with the resurrection. There's a verifiable burial. Number one, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. Those are scriptures that you're going to want to know. And every one of those scriptures point us to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four gospel writers tell us that Joseph of Arimathea asked permission of Pilate to take the body of Jesus down from the cross and that he, was, and that he Joseph, wrapped Jesus' body with linen cloth and then laid him in his, Joseph's, own tomb and then rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. So when we look at the gospels, we find multiple independent accounts of this burial story. Of Joseph of Arimathea putting Jesus in his tomb. And the reason this is significant is that it places a dead Jesus in a tomb, and most significantly is that he was placed there by an individual that was known within the community Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the very council who planned to have Jesus murdered. That Joseph of Arimathea, he was an insider. So the point about Joseph of Arimathea is that he would not be the sort of person who would have been invented by Christian legend or Christian authors to make up some phony resurrection story or burial story about Jesus. Because Joseph of Arimathea was a specific person belonging to a specific group of people who you could go and ask questions of directly yourself. Listen, if they were going to concoct some kind of story making up the the death burial and resurrection of jesus they would have said any volunteers today they would have said that it was david neenhuis of jinx oklahoma who went and asked permission to take jesus off the cross and david went and took jesus and put him in his own grave why because nobody knows david they don't know david of jinx oklahoma they would never be able to find david of jinx oklahoma They would have no knowledge. So you would create a phantom person who lived in some phantom place who did all of this work so that nobody could go and ask the questions. Are you seeing the significance of Joseph of Arimathea? That would be a major problem if this really didn't happen the way these independent sources identified that it did happen. So you clearly have a verifiable burial of Jesus, a dead Jesus, in a tomb. Thank you, Joseph of Arimathea, for stepping up to the plate. Secondly, is the truth and the fact that the empty tomb was discovered by women. See Mark 16. Sorry, ladies, but the reality is, is the gospel accounts, now this isn't what I'm sorry about, but the the gospel accounts give agreement that the empty tomb was discovered by women first. So when you understand The role of women in first century Jewish society, you understand that the gospel writers would have never made up an empty tomb story and purposefully used the testimony, the eyewitness testimony, the first testimony of women. A woman's testimony wasn't even taken in court of law. They weren't even, even if they were an eyewitness, they would not allow their testimony to come before the court of law and be usable as credible witness, as credible testimony. So why would they use the testimony of women, the eyewitness of women, to be the first to see the empty tomb discovered by Jesus? It would be laughed off immediately. But the reason that they did this is because this is exactly how it happened. As absurd as it would have been for the gospel writers to have done this if they were trying to deceive people, listen, trying to make up some legendary account of an empty tomb being discovered would have never put women at the tomb first, ever. You cannot come up with one logical conclusion as to why that would be the case, except for the fact that's exactly how it happened, and they recorded what happened exactly the way it happened. Because God doesn't care. God's not afraid of man. He rose his son from the dead and he had women and their testimony be the first eyewitnesses of that empty tomb. Isn't that amazing? If you're going to make up some fake story, you, you, wouldn't, you would not have the empty tomb being discovered by women. And lastly, thirdly, is the disciples who willingly died for their beliefs. I mean, people will die for religious beliefs if they sincerely believe they're true, but won't die for religious beliefs if they know them absolutely to be false. Yet after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, we see the disciples become somewhat scattered, and then they're all of a sudden regathered, and they're committing themselves to spreading a very specific message that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of God who died on a cross, was buried, returned to life, and was seen alive by them. They were willing to spend the rest of their lives testifying to those truths without any payoff from a human perspective. They faced a life of hardship. They often went without food. They slept exposed to the elements. They were ridiculed, beaten, imprisoned, and eventually most of them were executed for their belief in Jesus Christ. Hey guys, let's gather up here together and let's tell a fake story so we can go die for it. People don't do that. They just don't do that. History tells us that Matthew was killed in Ethiopia as a result of a sword wound. History tells us that Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt, after being dragged by horses through the street until he was dead. It tells us that Luke was hanged in Greece because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus to the lost. History tells us that Peter was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross because of his faith in Christ. History tells us that James, Jesus' brother, and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown down from the top of the temple, and having survived the fall, enemies of the gospel then beat James to death with a club. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Rome for his faith in Jesus. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, a missionary to Asia, was whipped to death for his continued preaching of the risen Jesus. Jude was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas the traitor, was stoned and then beheaded. And Paul, the apostle, was tortured and then beheaded by the Emperor Nero at Rome. And if we ask the very obvious questions, we're forced to ask the question, for what? For good intentions? To simply carry out a hoax? I think there's no other, there's no adequate explanation that can be conceived of other than they were convinced, they were convinced, beyond the shadow of any doubt, that they had seen Jesus Christ alive from the dead. I'm going to tell you right now, it's the only thing that would make me do that. How about you? If I didn't know, and I didn't have, if I wasn't eyes on, I might have been a little sketchy. These guys were eyes on. They weren't sketchy. They laid it all down, and we are the recipients of their testimonies of the written scriptures. Amen? Amen? And thus we believe that Jesus is the Lord of glory, the one who went before the ancient of days and received a kingdom and a dominion and a power and a glory that will last forever and ever and ever and will have no end. We believe this, and we believe that he was resurrected from the dead. This is what Christians believe. So let me ask you again, who do you say that Jesus really is? Let me encourage you to leave here today making the firm conclusion that Christ is your Lord. It's good to be His friend, but He's your Lord. Amen? Amen?